We're going to read from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 down to 38. Here's what it says. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanael, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer, with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Testing. (laughs) There we go. This technology stuff, I just don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Breck. Breck is, a, Breck is an amazing servant, isn't he? He's always serving. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. This is the fourth of the songs of, of the book of Luke, and we've been studying through them through the Christmas season, and I have the privilege, great privilege, of, of uh, walking through this one with you. Um, the nuke. Dimittis is the Latin, old Latin traditional term for it. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful song, and it also has great application for us. Let me show you how. Let me begin by asking you a question. Are you a believer? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died to wash away all your sins? He died in your place. Most of us here believe that. Most of us here probably are committed to Christ in our hearts. So let me ask you the following question. The next question. Out of that belief, do you want to obey Christ and to work with him in his mission to disciple all nations and teach them to obey his commandments? Do you want to obey him and serve with him? I bet you do. I'm sure you do. And so that leads me to a third question, which is this. Are you pursuing readiness to serve with God and serve under God? Are you ready to serve in God's kingdom mission to the world in Christ? And are you pursuing readiness? Are you preparing yourself for what that mission may entail? Now, I think as I work 
my way to that question, it becomes harder and harder to have an enthusiastic yes, because I think most of us are very aware of our own weaknesses and faults in how we're preparing to really obey Jesus Christ and participate with him in his kingdom mission. Are you ready to serve Christ? Are you ready for what he has for you to do? That's my question for you today. Simeon and Anna are going to show us what it is to be ready to serve in God's mission. Now, let me give you an illustration of the situation I think many Christians are in today. I, my first career was as a game programmer. This often pricks the ears of teenagers, especially teenage boys, maybe particularly especially uh, they get interested that I'm a game programmer. I worked on Halo, actually, a little bit in a small capacity. I was there at the dawn of Borderlands, if you've heard of that game, at Gearbox Software. And I was the producer uh, and director of the Brothers in Arms game and many others. So that tends to interest people. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Of that, I'm still, I'm still in technology. I work for a company called Covenant Eyes. We work on a, uh, accountability software. But as a game developer, when people find that out, they often say to me, oh... I would love to be a game developer. It's my passion. I want to be a game developer. Or maybe they say, I've got this nephew, and he really wants to be a game developer. I've got this cousin who really wants to be a game developer. Get this question all the time. So what do I do to get ready to be a game developer? And so I might say, well, what have you been doing so far? And they say, well, I I play a lot of games. I play about 8 or 10 or 12 hours of games a day, That's got to be giving me some sort of preparation to be a game developer. Okay. What else do you do? Well, I draw pictures of the things I'd like to make in games. I'd like to uh, make this super cool weapon that I've designed, and so I've been drawing pictures of it. I've got it all, ideas of how it's going to work. And I write stories. I've got stories about the games that I want to make. I want to make about these stories. And so I have the somewhat amusing, fun uh, job of telling them the bad news, which is none of those are preparing you to be a game programmer at all. Game programming is math. And so if you want to prepare to be a game programmer, you need to study hard in your math courses. You need to learn your linear algebra, matrices, vectors, magnitudes, square roots, absolute values. And then you need to use those things in applied ways. You need to build a, a view frustum so that you can do clipping on the screen. And you need to do binary space partitioning trees and arc trees. And if you get into the physics side of it, you, of course you need position and velocity and acceleration, but you'll need to be able to integrate those with midpoint integration or Euler integration. Or if you're really fancy, you can use Runge-Kutta integration. That's what you need to be doing if you're going to be a game developer. That's preparing for being a game developer. I find that very exciting to talk about. This may be a little boring for you guys. (laughs) So the problem that these uh, would-be game developers have is that their passion, what their mind is on, which is games, and becoming a game programmer doesn't match up with their preparation. They're not really preparing to be a game programmer. Are you preparing for the service that Christ has for you to perform. Uh, You know, the same thing happens with sports. Somebody says, I'm graduating from eighth grade. I really want to be on the varsity freshman. I want to be on the varsity football team. 
That's my passion. I've got to be on the football team. And so how do they spend that summer? Well, they're not exercising. They're not eating well. They're not watching football. They're not reading about football. They're not thinking about football. They're not throwing the ball. They're sitting, and they're eating potato chips until they get double their size. You, doubling size is sometimes a good thing for football, but there's some different kinds of doubling. So they're not, their passion to be a football player doesn't match their preparation. You can think of many other examples. This tends to be a human uh, failing that what we say we care about, say we're ready to do, doesn't necessarily match what we're actually doing or preparing for. As a group, American Christians today, including evangelicals, which is the you know sort of the tradition that we're a part of, are ill prepared to serve Christ in His kingdom work. Yes, I I I, I deliver this accusation to us. We are ill prepared as a group to serve Christ. We are comfortable in America. We're self-satisfied. We're worldly, really, as a people. We're averse to discomfort. We're averse to difficulty. We're obsessed when we do have some tiny difficulty or discomfort come along. We get obsessed about it, obsessed with difficulties. We're distracted. Our lives are full of trivialities. We are entertained, pampered people. And, uh, and we're often unrighteous. We're often impure. I think this is a group that, you know, I know you guys, you're conscious of how God still has a lot of work to do in you. And uh, we're all in progress. We're all being delivered from sin through the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. But when it comes to preparing for God's work, being ready to share boldly the gospel, being ready to love boldly people who are not lovable, then that unrighteousness, that sin, can erode our power. So we are very poorly prepared, many of us, for God's work. Here's some statistics. Uh, About a quarter of Americans call themselves evangelical. If you have four Americans in a room, one of them will say, I'm an evangelical. But if you ask that evangelical what his or her beliefs are, Only about half of evangelicals actually uphold the most basic of evangelical beliefs. The authority of scripture, the importance of evangelism, um, uh, Christ's coming and dying for our sins, and the sufficiency of Christ to pay for our sins by faith alone. Those basic tenets of belief are actually not upheld by half of the evangelicals, not not to mention the larger Christian population. About 45% of Protestant churchgoers say that they shared the gospel in the last six months. So if you look at the last six months and you look at Protestants, a little under a half shared the gospel with somebody else. And how many of them at least prayed for opportunities to uh, share the gospel? About 27% rarely or never even pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Now, that's very convicting, but I have to admit when I reflect on this myself, in any given week, I'm not sure that I, uh, not sure that I prayed that God would give me opportunities in that week. I, I think I might fit into that, that 27%, a lot of weeks at least. And if you reflect on your own prayer life, when's the last time you prayed, God, please give me the opportunity to share the gospel today? When was that? 
It might, it might have been farther back than, you, than you'd like to think. Um, so evangelicals who have the word evangelism in their name, we really don't share the gospel as much as we, at least that we think we should. Um, how about reading the Bible? That's something else evangelicals care about. We read the Bible. But less than half of evangelicals have ever read the Bible once. Less than half. And since that's good news, that means that at least half, about half, uh, about 45% actually, have read the Bible at least once. But uh, most of us have never read the Bible even once, the document of our faith. And again here, I would ask you to reflect. Have you read this whole scripture that you say you believe in? If not, then you are not ready. You're not ready enough for the work that God has for us in this world. You need to read the scripture. So it's a couple of statistics. That's not everything that we might kind of examine when thinking about the evangelical life and what we would expect of ourselves. But those are some statistics that illustrate that, in general, evangelical Americans are kind of sitting on the fence. And so I ask you, are you, are you sitting on the fence? As Christ moves forward his mission in the world, are you ready to work alongside him in that mission? Are you prepared? If you want to receive the blessing that is participating with Christ in his mission in the world, if you want to receive that blessing, then you need to receive, you need to pursue righteousness, you need to pursue a deep understanding of the scripture, and a prayer-filled, spirit-filled relationship with God. Now, why am I saying those things? Righteousness, scripture, relationship with God, spirit-filled relationship with God? It's because I read Luke 2, verses 22 through 38, about 100 times this week. I won't exaggerate, about 20 times this week. And I became more and more convicted that Simeon and Anna are beating us. They're beating us at the, at the, uh, the game, as it were, of serving God. So let's learn from them. Because that's what they're there for. Let's learn from them as models. They were ready. Are you ready? So in this sermon, we're just going to do two things, two very simple things. And I would encourage you to do these same two things in your own Bible study. We're just going to start by listening to the text. The fancy word for this is exegesis. This is a Justin Jackson word. Exegesis. We're just going to listen to the text, hear what God is saying to us. And then the second thing we'll do is we'll apply it to ourselves. We'll say, what does this mean for me? What is God saying to me? How do I need to change right now to conform to what God wants? So let's start by examining the text closely and really listening hard for what God has to say. And as we get into that, I'm just going to pray one more time. Uh, for God's Spirit to work in our hearts as we do. So let me just pray briefly. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in your people. We do pray that you would bring conviction where it's needed, but not discouragement. We pray that you would bring encouragement and the power of the Holy Spirit to ready us to be true sons and daughters of Christ and to imitate him in taking up our cross and following him wherever need be to fulfill your command and to obey your mission. We ask for for you to equip us through this time in the Scripture.
Christ's name we pray. Amen. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 22, if you're not there already. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to, the, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay, who's they, their purification, who's them, and who's him? Well, him is the Sunday school answer. It's the, it's the two-inch putt. That's Jesus. They brought him up. And who's there? There, Of course, that's Joseph and Mary here at the beginning of Luke. That's Joseph and Mary, his, his, his parents or his supposed parents. Joseph is really his stepfather, if you think about it, but his parents. Purification, what's that talking about? Why does it say purification? Their purification. Well, you don't need to turn there, but if you're a studious type, you can write this down. What that's referring to is Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Leviticus 12, 1 to 8. This is where the law, the Old Testament law, has told the Jews about the purification of women who give birth. And what it says is very simple, really. When a mom gives birth to a little boy, she is considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days. That was back then. If you're a mother today, don't sweat it. Jesus has nullified the law, according to Ephesians. Uh, Nullified it in some sense anyway. But they were expected to be unclean for 40 days, so they couldn't enter the temple for 40 days. The boy would be circumcised at uh, 8 days old, and then... uh, and then she'd be unclean. But at the 40-day mark, if he was the firstborn male, they needed to bring him to the temple and pay a sacrifice for him. Firstborn male of everything in Israel, animal or human, firstborn male belonged to God. And so you sort of had to buy him back by offering a sacrifice. And so that's what they're doing. So their purification means that she is purified from having given birth to Jesus. Mary has been purified. Uh, And that means Jesus is how old? He's just about exactly 40 days old. That's right. 40 days old. Verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That is quoting from Exodus chapter 13. It's a similar, similar law but different location. Um, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, that is back to Leviticus 12. And so if you were a mom, you'd have this baby, male baby, firstborn, you bring him to the temple, you need to offer a lamb, actually. You need to offer a lamb to buy him back from the Lord, basically, for the rest of his life. And so you'd kill this lamb, Offer it to the Lord, and now you, you have your baby. But if you're poor, the law says this. In Leviticus 12, it says if you're poor, then you don't have to bring a If you can't afford a lamb, then you can bring these two birds, two turtle doves, two turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Um, and so what does this tell us about the economic state of Mary and Joseph? It tells us that they were poor. They were poor. Jesus was born into poor circumstances. Verse 25, now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. We're going to talk about two people in this, um, in this uh, passage. Simeon is the first, 
And then Anna is the second one. So here we are with Simeon. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Simeon. We really don't know his job necessarily. We don't know if he was married or not. We don't really know how old he was, although he seems to be old, uh, pretty old, as we, as we will see in a moment. But we do know this as we carry on in verse 25. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So the character traits that mark Simeon is not his job or his age or his marital status. It's his holy life. And the scripture uses two words to describe his holy character. Do you see them there? The first one is righteous. The second is devout. And so you have to stop and think, well, what's the difference between those two things? Those are the same thing. But they're not quite the same thing. A person who's righteous does the right thing. A person who's righteous is moral. They do the right thing even when it's hard to do. They, their actions are characterized by rightness, by goodness. So think of Atticus Finch, for example, from To Kill a Mockingbird. He does the right thing even when it's hard. In that regard, he's... Um, He's righteous. It's an example. Thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for teaching that to me. <laughs> Atticus Finch, good example of righteousness. Devoutness is a little bit different. Devoutness has to do with your devotion, your religious devotion, your dutifulness. So not only did he do the right thing, but he was also, you might say, a good believer. He came to the temple. He gave the sacrifices. He prayed diligently. He was devoted to God. In a broader sense, he pursued a relationship with God. He did the right thing. Atheists can do the right thing. But he also had this relationship with God. So he was both righteous and devout. So this is a very godly, admirable man. And his heart was upon the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of of Israel. What is that consolation? This word consolation, the Greek word is one that you might have heard in the past. Uh, the Holy Spirit in, in the book of John is referred to as the comforter. And that's the paraclete is the Greek word, paraclete. You might have heard before, the comforter or consoler, advisor sort of kind of. This is the same word in a little bit different form. It's paraclesis, comfort, consolation, resolution. So, Simeon, his heart is upon the consolation of Israel. Why does Israel need to be comforted and consoled? Or there's a few reasons you can think of. One is, they're occupied by the Romans. Their life is one of sort of semi-bondage anyway. They're they're under another government's uh, oppression. Kind of like Texas, actually, if you think about that. Worse than Texas, they they were dominated by another government, a hostile government. Uh, to a large extent. <clears throat> but there's a deeper reason, and that is that Israel is in sin. Israel is just in this long, dreary story of being alienated from God. And they keep going after false gods, and then God punishes them by having them be occupied by an alien power. And uh, They can't seem to break out of this cycle. So what they're looking for is a savior, the Messiah. 
That will save them. That is the salvation that they're, that, that they're looking for. So that's what Simeon is waiting for. He can't wait for God to bring his mission to completion. And Simeon yearns to see God's way be the way in Israel. And we need to yearn to see God's way be the way in America, certainly, in Texas, yes, in Ovilla, in our households. Is God's way the way that you parent? Is God's way the way that you child? Is God's way the way that you husband or wife? Holy people, God's people, live out their faith by seeking God's way where they are. That's what Simeon is waiting for. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He had a personal relationship with God that meant that he had some kind of a connection with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. In the Old Testament, Christ had not yet gone to the cross and ascended. So he had not yet sent the Holy Spirit upon all believers. In the Old Testament, people could be filled with the Holy Spirit in a sort of momentary or special way. But today as believers, we're not just filled with the Holy Spirit in a momentary or special way. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of us, a seal, and is transforming us to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of our DNA almost, if you'll forgive the expression. So we have the Holy Spirit in a permanent and um, transformative way as New Testament believers that the Old Testament believers did not. But Simeon did have a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. David described a similar thing in one of the Psalms. He said, Lord, don't let your Holy Spirit depart from me. Don't let your Holy Spirit depart from me. A New Testament believer doesn't have to pray that because the Holy Spirit has sealed us as a deposit and cannot depart from us. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit's relationship with people was more more, um, conditional almost or more temporary. But Simeon did have a special relationship with the Holy Spirit, and we see that in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is a very interesting prophecy. I can't imagine what it would feel like emotionally to know that you cannot die, you will not die. I would drive like a maniac. I'll tell you that. You cannot die until you have seen the Christ. Actually, I probably wouldn't because my faith is sufficiently weak that I would think, well, maybe I saw him like zipping past and (laughs) that was him. How did I die? I'm here, but I didn't see the Christ. Oh, you did. He was that blur. Um, No, but he he did. That's an odd prediction. It would have been very odd to live with, I think, but he knew that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Christ, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The king, the eternal king, who was God and man, who would come and bring consolation to Israel and indeed to all people. That's what Simeon was, was, was waiting for. You can imagine in his prayer life, his devotion, his devoutness, in the past, kneeling in his house and saying, Lord, I so want you to work out your, your plan in Israel, and I'm afraid I'm going to die before I see it happen. When's the Christ going to come? When's the Messiah going to come? When's the Messiah going to come? Is he going to come soon enough? Because I'm getting closer to death. Can I see what you do in Israel? 
And I can imagine Simeon praying that. And at some point, the Holy Spirit told his heart, you know what? I grant you your request. You will live to see the Christ with your own eyes. And so that was Simeon's backstory, if you will. That was his, that was his character and, and, and his nature. So verse 27, Simeon came in, in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God. And then he gives the fourth song of the first two chapters of Luke, the fourth sort of um, Advent song. It says in verse 27 there, he came in the Spirit into the temple. So here we see that the Spirit wasn't just speaking to him in the past, but he had a relationship with the Spirit where the Spirit was guiding him in that moment. Simeon, time to get up. Let's go. You need to go to the temple. Have you ever felt the prompting of the Spirit? Have you ever felt the Spirit say, it's time to get up? You need to go talk to that person. You need to bring, you see that person, you don't know that person. She's a stranger and she's crying. Now you can keep walking or you can go over and ask her what's up. And you need to go and ask her. But you're at the airport and you got your luggage and it keeps falling over funny. And you're not sure you're going to get to the, to the, the gate on time. And so you say, no, that'd be embarrassing. She'd be embarrassed. I'd probably just alienate her from Christians because I'm too nice. So you keep walking. Those little urges to love, to encourage, very often they come from the Spirit. Simeon had learned in his relationship with Christ, in his relationship with God in prayer, to hear when the Spirit was telling him to do something. And this day, the Spirit said, get up, go to the temple, and he went. And boy, was he glad he did. The parents, Joseph and Mary, brought Jesus in to do for him according to the custom of the law. Just notice, by the way, there, Joseph and Mary were very devout and holy people themselves. Many Jews at that time were on the fence. Many Jews did not practice the sacrifices. Many Jews had sort of given up on God. But a few were faithful, and Joseph and Mary were faithful to bring Jesus and do for him according to the custom of the law. So I want you to imagine this scene. The Temple Mount, and Justin just went there last year, and he's taken another group in the coming year to go and see it. I've only seen pictures, but let's go there in our minds together. Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the center of an entire nation. You can think of the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C., or some other prestigious place like that. This is a very focused area where all the Jews need to come to do their duties for all sorts of events in life. This is going to be a crowded place. It's got a large um, sort of playa, uh, what do you call that, like a, you know, a porch area, a large area, where uh, people are walking around. And in that area, there's a fence And that fence is a dividing barrier. Gentiles cannot come inside that fence. They can be on the outer part of the temple grounds, but they cannot come past that fence. That's the dividing barrier. Only Jews. So now Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus come in. They're able to go past the fence. 
Then you have the temple proper. And in the temple proper, uh, there's sort of a courtyard area where women can be, along with men and, and babies. Uh, this is called the court of women. And so if you're a woman, you can go this far, but no farther. And so then beyond that, if you're a man, you can go on into a, a sort of a deeper part of the temple. And then beyond that is sort of the priestly part of the temple where only the priests can go. And then there's the Holy of Holy, Holies. So the temple precinct and then the building itself is almost like a, almost like a funnel uh, or a series of filters that filter out people to higher and higher levels of God-given, God-appointed holiness in their ceremonial system holiness in the ceremonial system to where they can reach uh, God in his manifestation in the temple. And um, so Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus must have been able to go into the court of women. And there is Simeon. In the court of women, if you'll go with your imagination with me, there would have been tons of people, maybe hundreds of people, shuffling around, brushing up against each other, moving past each other. They had animals. Of course, some had birds in cages, little maybe bamboo or stick cages. And people would have had lambs. People would have had bulls, potentially. Animals, things that fall out of animals. Busy, noisy, smelly, crazy place. At one end, there are sacrifices happening, the screams of animals, the blood of animals, and the altar and the burning and the smell, really the smell of a barbecue, in a sense. Uh, That was the temple. Noisy, smelly, a little scary because the presence of God is there. Very social, um, uh, busy place. And so there Simeon goes because the Holy Spirit told him in his heart to go there. And he goes and he sees people and they're passing by. And this couple of men here are saying, boy, the stock market's doing fantastic. What are you going to invest in? No, I'm thinking about selling before it goes down. And not them. And he goes past, and here's a man weeping and crying because uh, he, his son is addicted to much wine, and he wants him to escape from that, but he can't escape from it. He's addicted. Please, Lord, rescue my son. And here's a woman who wants a baby, and she's offering a, a sacrifice to God so that God will hear her, and she'll be able to conceive and have a baby. And here's another couple of young people talking about the Mandalorian and how awesome it is and how Disney Plus is awesome and it's incredible how many properties Disney has. Um, People are talking about all sorts of things. But Simeon is thinking about one thing. And so he looks. Brown heads, black heads, probably not anything other than brown heads and black heads in the Middle East Jewish culture at that time. And brown clothes and white clothes and gray clothes. And out of this crowd, the Holy Spirit shows him. Look at that couple. And there's a young woman, probably 14 or 15 in that culture, and her husband, who's a little older, and their baby. And Simeon makes bold to move through the crowd and come up to that couple and say, Excuse me, but the Lord has sent me to meet you and greet you. Do you make bold in your pursuit of God's mission? 
Simeon demonstrates boldness. Do you have that boldness? Are you ready to show boldness to do what God wants you to do? And boldly, Simeon goes to the mother and he says, May I hold the baby, 40 days old? And she, in her mind, thinks, No, you may not put your germs and your clumsy hands on my precious baby. Maybe that's what she thinks. But maybe the Holy Spirit or his face, we don't know. But she trusts him. And Simeon takes up the baby. That's what it says in the scripture. He took Jesus, little baby Jesus, up in his arms. And then he blessed God. He praised God. Hallelujah. He said, Hosanna. Hallelujah. It's happening. I I believe it, but I can't believe it. It's happening. What he said is true. And it's happening right now. And then he, in the spirit, utters a song that Mary remembers. And by word, mouth to ear to mouth to ear, Luke receives it. And Luke, in the spirit, documents it for us so that we today can hear as if we were standing right there on the circle of that, that little group in the, in the crowded temple what Simeon said in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people to your people Israel. Lord, now you are now you are letting your servant, servant depart in peace. For Simeon, it's enough to have seen the Christ. That is what he needs to have peace. What do you need to have peace with your life? That's the ambition question. What are your ambitions? What are your hopes and dreams? What's enough for you so that you'll have peace? For Simeon, just to see God's action in the world, just to see God's son born into the world was enough for him to die in peace. And we, too, should be satisfied with our own small part in God's great plan. You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. According to your word. God keeps his promises. God does keep his promises. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon identifies Jesus with God's salvation. There is no other salvation given to mankind but this one that I am holding in my hands. Your salvation right here. You've prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples. He is a light for revelation to both the Gentiles and to the Israelites. So even Simeon This faithful Jew recognized that this salvation was not just for him, is not just for his people, but it was for all peoples. Thank God it was for Americans and Texans as well. And Oklahomans, barely. And Venezuelans. Now, if I get going that way, I'll never stop. All right. So, verse 33. His father and mother marveled at what was said about 
Jesus about what was said about him. Well, okay, they're not marveling at the content of what Simeon said because actually Simeon's not saying anything that hasn't already been said in the book of Luke about Jesus. In fact, they've said it themselves in the spirit as they've said, sang their songs. So Simeon's not saying anything new. What's amazing, what's marvelous, what they're marveling at is that here they've been doing all these things and hearing from the Lord in Bethlehem, in uh, not Nineveh, in Nazareth. They've been hearing from God in their own little local circle. And now they've traveled all these miles and they've come to the temple. And then this old guy comes up to them and he declares the same thing. He declares the same prophecy. What a confirmation of God's work in the hearts and minds of these few people. So they marvel at what God is doing. Now that was Simeon's sort of loud song that was there for everybody to hear. But then in verse 34, you get kind of a more private moment between Simeon and the parents. Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary and Jesus. I'll just point something out to you, very small detail. It's a curiosity, but the sort of thing that we want to look for when we're studying Scripture. You'll notice that in verse 28, Simeon blessed God. But in verse 34, Simeon blessed them. That's the same word, eulogia, or eulogeo, if it's the verb. And you've heard of a eulogy. That's what you say about somebody at their funeral. It's you is good, and then log is talk. I, I talk. So you're speaking good. So this is an interesting case where that same word has a little bit different meaning in those two places. When he, when he blesses God, eulogeo, he's not putting goodness onto God. He's praising God. He's saying, God, you are good. Eulogeo, good talk. You are good. But then when he blesses Mary and Joseph, he's not praising them. He's declaring good upon them. This is something that believers do. I hope you do it. It's something we do. We're able to make life better for people simply by asking God to do so. Now, we should make life better for people by picking up their furniture and helping them move it and practical means like that too. But we can bring God's blessing upon people by declaring it. And that's what Simeon does there. He eulogeos Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus. It's the same word with a little bit different meaning. So he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So he's letting Mary know ahead of time with a little prophecy that Jesus is going to be a disruptive figure in the political and economic system of Israel. That will be true even in Jesus' lifetime, but it will become even more so as Jesus prophesies in, uh, later on in Luke and in Matthew. He prophesies that Israel will fall. And that happened in A.D. 70. Jerusalem was torn apart by the Romans, decimated. So Jesus is initiating changes in world history that will spell the fall and rise of many. And he'll be a sign that is opposed. It would be great to tell this story that this wonderful baby came and everybody loved this baby and leapt for joy at his arrival and everybody took care of him and coddled him and and listened to everything he said and obeyed him. But Simeon says right from the beginning, this is the Son of God 
but he'll be opposed. He's not doing the opposing. He's not out opposing people, but they'll oppose him. And then Simeon gives a little uh, personal word of encouragement uh, or warning even to Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul also. So here Simeon is looking ahead to the crucifixion that Mary will watch and be a part of as an observer. And no doubt her soul soul was profoundly pierced by seeing her son pierced uh, on the cross. It's interesting that the scripture and Simeon and God in the spirit take this moment to give her a little warning and a little comfort. It reminds me of uh, what Jesus later when he's telling about Jerusalem being torn apart. He says, "How woe to those who are nursing, nursing mothers and those with young children in that day. And it's just a strange moment where he's unfolding grand histories of what is to come. And yet he takes this moment to think about the women and the children. And here we see that same spirit speaking to Mary personally in the midst of these grand historical transformations. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That is true then, and it was true then, and it's true today. Jesus reveals hearts. People react to him very differently. As you tell people about Jesus, or even as you live out the truth of Jesus and how you behave and what you do, Some adore that, they recognize the good and they love it, and others oppose it, they hate it, they hate Jesus, they hate his message, they hate what he represents. Jesus is always, until he reigns in glory, he is always a source of controversy. And as his followers, we must be ready for that. Are you ready for the controversy that you must be a part of if you are to uphold who Jesus is and what he means. That is Simeon's ministry to the Holy Family. That was what he was made to do. That's what he was waiting to do. What has God made you to do? What are you needing to prepare for? Simeon knew the scriptures. He knew that the Messiah would come. He knew that Israel needed a Messiah. He knew what God was doing. He pursued righteousness. He was devout. He was dutiful in his religious duties, in his prayers. And as a consequence, he had an intimacy with God that enabled him to follow step by step after what God wanted him to do. And therefore, the blessing that he received from that was he was privileged to participate in God's work. And as believers, we are even more so. Simeon was an Old Testament believer. But now that Christ has died for our sins and risen again, we have the Spirit in a new way that Simeon could only dream of. I hath not seen nor ear heard. And now we are truly empowered to do God's kingdom work. And so that's what we need to be ready to do. Let's talk about Anna, verse 36. She was a prophetess. That is, she was a public speaker, you might see. She say she proclaimed God's words. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was a good Jewess. Part of Luke's purpose in these early stories about Elizabeth and Zechariah and Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna is that he's telling people 
Jesus was the legitimate Jewish Messiah, and real Jews recognized him as such. At least some of them did. So Anna is a real Jewess, and uh, she's going to testify that Christ is that Jesus was the Christ. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 years old. So she's old. There are other translations that will say um, 84 more years after his death. So she might be as old as 105, depending on how you take that phrase in the Greek. But let's say she was, she was advanced in years. She was old. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So she, too, was righteous and utterly devoted. She could have remarried, but she didn't. Instead, she devoted herself to worship, to prayer and fasting night and day in the temple, staying in the temple. You mean to say she abandoned the temple because it was full of hypocrites? She didn't want to go to the temple because it was full of hypocrites? No. She went to the temple, even though it was full of hypocrites, because she was devoted to do what God demanded of her. Verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, so happens, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Coming up at that very hour, of course led by the Spirit, she gave thanks to God. Now, Simeon's primary ministry is to the Holy Family themselves, but her primary ministry is not to them. It's to the other people in the temple. Who is she speaking to? All who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she's getting up a little crowd, and she's starting to say, that baby is the Christ. This is it. And here's what's happening, and here's what we need to do, and this is what the Word says. She was a prophetess. That's what prophets do. They declare the, the Lord's words. So she begins to declare, and that is her ministry. Both of these older people found that God was not done with them. And I know for many in this room, you wonder, if you're older, is God done with my ministry? Does he have anything left for me to do that's worth doing? But here we see Simeon and Anna. God was not done with them. He had work for them to do. Both Simeon and Anna were profoundly prepared to do their work for the Lord, to do their mission work. They had both pursued righteousness. They had cleansed themselves of sin. Now, you ask yourself now, please, what sins do you need to be cleansed of in order to be fully equipped and ready to serve God? We are to pursue righteousness. What's left in your walk to become righteous? They were devout. They were dutiful. They prayed diligently. They did the work of the Lord. Are you performing the basic duties that you need to perform? I'm not not just talking about coming to church. What is it that we need to do to be diligently devoted to the Lord? Certainly prayer, for example. And they knew the scriptures. Both of them understood just what God was doing because they had read the Old Testament, and they saw that the Messiah was coming, and they recognized him. While all these other people in the temple, Jesus just passed right past them. But these two were ready I, myself, Jeff Wofford, I want to be ready for Jesus' second coming 
as they were ready for his first coming. And I want to be ready to do his work in the meantime as they were ready to do his work. And I want you to be ready. So, here's what we can do to be ready for Christ in his work and his second coming. First, read the scripture. If you're one of those who have never read the entire Bible, do it. That's what the American education system was created for in the mid-1800s, to teach us to read the scriptures. And now we go through 12 years of education, and we get to the end and say, I can't understand this. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Read the scripture. Read the whole Bible. One way to get started is to start with Matthew and read a chapter a day. Chapter a day keeps the devil away, they say. There's many other ways to study the scripture, but if you're just trying to find the will to do it, that's not a bad way to start. Start with the book of Matthew, read a chapter a day, and when you get to the end of each chapter, take a moment and write in your Bible, it's okay, write in your Bible a summary of that chapter. What did it just say? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Simeon and Anna meet Jesus in the temple. You'll remember it, and you'll understand it if you do that. If you're up for the advanced program, you start in Genesis. Chapter a day works fine. Now, I'm going to give you a little authorization by what little authority is vested in me. When you get to the book of Leviticus, you're prone to give up. If you need to skim through some of the laws about what to do when your cow gets stuck in a fence and stuff like that, you can skim in those passages. But keep your eyes open because you never know. There's often little stories that pop out of there. So you keep reading, you skim if it's too, too slow going for you. But then by the time you get to Numbers, the Kings, the Chronicles, it's going to get exciting again. And I'll tell you what, Judge, the book of Judges, they don't even want to make a movie out of the, Judge, the book of Judges. It's too exciting. So it'll get good again. And then later, once you've gotten to the end of Revelation, you can go back and pick up the parts in Leviticus and find new ways to color code or keep yourself interested in, in the, the law. Read the Scripture. By the time, next time I preach up here, which could be another two years or it could be two weeks, I want everybody in this room to have read the entire Bible. Will you do that for me? Yes, this is the place where you nod. Yes, I will read the entire Bible. Secondly, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. Find out where your sin is. If it's right there, and find a way to build a wall between you and that sin, whether it's an accountability partner or software or something that you do with liquor bottles or whatever. Find a way to put a wall up between you and that sin. If it's anger, count to ten. Go and sit down in a quiet place. Pursue God in prayer and fasting. Anna prayed and fasted night and day in the temple for 84 years or something like that, 64, 84 years, somewhere in there. If nothing else, just spend 10 minutes a day just in prayer. When I worked at Gearbox, I felt like I didn't have time to pray much, so what I started doing is I would drive over 10 or 15 minutes before I needed to be there. I'd arrive in the parking lot, you know, 20 till or so, give me five minutes to walk up the go to the elevator, and, and then 15 minutes to just pray. And I would just pray for 15 minutes before work. You can find the time. Sure you can. 
And ask God to involve you in his work. You heard Simeon pray, Lord, can I see your Christ? And God says, says, yes, you can greet my Christ before you die. Ask God to involve you in his work and learn to hear when he says, get up, time to go. You need to go help right there. Respond to that prompting. And finally, be patient. God fulfills his promises, all of them, always. But he does it so slow. So terribly slow. It's funny because it always feels like it takes forever for him to fulfill the promise. But then after you're done with it, you look back and it looks like it was no time at all. But that, that waiting is, 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 is murder. Now, I've given you some conviction today. I told people this week when they asked me what I was praying, what I was going to preach about, I told them I'm going to preach about the joy of shame and guilt. Uh, like a good, uh, a good, good Bible preacher. And I've given you some conviction. I hope I have. But um, understand, all of this is under the grace of God. We are equipped to do good works because we are saved by faith. We're not saved by works, but we are saved to work. And Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good purposes. So work at it. Work at it. Make it uncomfortable and pursue serving the Lord. Don't wait for the new year. It's not a new year's resolution. Look, whatever it is that's making you wait for the new year, that gap, that motivation to not quite do it yet is the same motivation that's going to stop you doing it three or four days into the new year. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right now. Today, if you're one who's thinking, yeah, I really do need to read the whole scripture. I've read bits and pieces. I've read this book, that book. I really need to read the whole thing. Do it today, Sunday, December 29th. There's nothing magic about January 1st. Do it today. If you're one who says, yeah, I really need to get into the discipline of praying, do it today. As you go to bed or maybe tomorrow morning as you wake up, don't wait 24 hours. And certainly don't wait for January 1st. If... This is my warning to myself and to you. If we who say that we have the Christ cannot get up the gumption, Texans, the gumption to do these basic things in obedience to Christ, to know the Scripture, to pray, to pursue righteousness, and to boldly carry out his mission through evangelism, through missions, Mike, by the way, Mike, are you here today, Mike Talley? He's got a mission trip going next June. He's got two mission trips going to Malawi, Africa. He's got one in March going to um, Dominican Republic, and then he's got one in November going to uh, Colombia. You will share the gospel with hundreds of people, and you will see them come to faith on those trips. If we as Christians cannot get out of our seats, watching Disney Plus and Netflix and Stranger Things and all that good stuff, and pursue God's mission in righteousness and prayer. What left will be there, there to be say, said for us at the judgment? Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. If you can't read a book or pray, you don't got much. Your faith isn't driving much of a car. Not much fuel there. So we need to do the basics. And then we need to work out of the basics to be prepared 
to do the great things. So, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who empowers that. To do and to will what he, what he wants in your life. Are you ready to serve Christ? Are you ready? Well, get ready. Get ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. If there's anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus yet, Lord, we pray that, that, that you would conceive faith in their hearts by your power. And for those of us who believe, we pray that you would um, conceive greater and greater obedience to you. To disciple each other and to disciple others in Ovilla and America and around the world. Please involve us in your work. Please. We ask you as Simeon asked you. Please involve us in your work. And please come back again soon, Jesus. Enable us to see your second coming. But prepare us to be ready for that. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.